Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. Either you are with us or you are with the terrorists. If you've got health care already, then you can keep your plan if you are satisfied with it. Donald Trump is not going to be president of the United States. Take it to the bank. Together, we will make America great again. We shall never surrender. Never surrender. It's what you've been waiting for all day. Buck Sexton with America Now. Join the conversation. Call Buck toll-free at 844-900-BUCK. That's 844-900-2825. The future of talk radio. Buck Sexton. We will have no choice but to totally destroy North Korea. Rocket Man is on a suicide mission for himself and for his regime. The United States is ready willing and able, but hopefully this will not be necessary. That's what the United Nations is all about. President Trump not messing around today at the U.N. Buck Sexton here with you all on Buck Sexton with America Now. Team Buck, welcome to the Freedom Hunt. Honor, privilege, and pleasure as always to have you here with me. Trump was laying it down at the U.N. I watched it live uh, this morning as it happened. I tend to have a a degree of of cynicism about all things United Nations. Uh, Having spent some time in a U.S. federal bureaucracy and knowing many U.S. federal bureaucrats and and interacting with them, uh, I can tell you that the U.N. is, you, you know, it is a slothful and inefficient usage of taxpayer money from all over the world, most notably ours, because we pay, what, 22% of the U.N. budget, something like that. Trump talked about that today. But he, he had some key points that I will get into a bit with you uh, on this hour. North Korea, I think, the biggest right now, although Iran and the possible decertification of the Iran deal is going to get a lot, a lot of people, a lot of people in the foreign policy establishment are going to be like, excuse me, sir, you're not allowed to do that. What do you think you are, the president? Uh, I think he, he might, in fact, uh, decertify the Iran deal and say, look, we got to get a new deal. And the foreign policy elites are going to scream bloody murder over that one. But that may not change a thing. Uh, I think that Trump doesn't really care what they have to say about some of these issues. But we will see. We will see. I am. I'm getting a bit ahead of where we are. Um, And let me just say that uh, Trump, Trump calling Kim Jong Un rocket man has certainly gotten uh, a lot, a lot of attention. And the way the the disdain with which he speaks about the North Korean leadership is, is forcing a lot of the big media folks out there to act like this is such a departure. Oh, this is he's playing games with nuclear war. Go back and find if you care to. I don't think you would, but and I I meant to do it today, but I got caught up with some other things. I got jammed up with my work today. Uh, but you could see that President Obama, before President Trump, would speak about our military options against North Korea. You know, all options on the table has become a cliche. We say that, and, and a bipartisan cliche. We say it about dealing with North Korea. We say it when it comes to dealing. With Iran, you know, all options are on the table. And you know, it's, it's up there with saying things like the world is a dangerous place and on complicated foreign policy matters, there are no good options. I mean, anyone can say this stuff. And if you 
want. You can go on MSNBC maybe and say it, and people will think you're smart, right? I mean, this is pretty straightforward. But uh, on the issue of North Korea specifically, there has been, I think, a bipartisan consensus that has been largely that has been largely wrong. Um, the consensus being that we would force North Korea to break and there would be a change in their behavior, right? I'm a little concerned, and we talked about this yesterday, with Rex Tillerson saying that there are four no's, no regime change. No, we're still in this position where we're trying to placate a regime that I think is implacable. I don't think it's possible to make them happy with us. I don't think that that's a regime that can pivot in that way. Um, But nonetheless, all options are on the table. When certain people say it, I think there's a sense that maybe it's for real. And when when President Trump says it, uh, whether you support Trump or not, my sense is that they believe that there's real there's there's teeth behind this. It's not just words. Whereas with some Democrats, maybe they'll say this, but they don't really mean it with Trump. It's a threat that gets people to sit up and pay attention. And it's a threat that I think it is time for us to take very, very seriously. President Trump said that North Korea must denuclearize. It is time for North Korea to realize that the denuclearization is its only acceptable future. The United Nations Security Council recently held two unanimous 15 to nothing votes adopting hard-hitting resolutions against North Korea. And I want to thank China and Russia for joining the vote to impose sanctions. So they've got sanctions in place. I don't think they'll change much. And and we'll talk more about North Korea in this hour in some detail uh, because I, I do not see their... I do not see the way in which these sanctions could in any reasonable with, with any reasonable expectation have the intended effect. The intended effect being they, as President Trump said, denuclearize. But I understand also we got to try. OK, North Korea is not the only thing that he talked about today. I think for a lot of you and you're many of you are, I'm sure, at work and you haven't even watched the speech. And that's why you come here and hang out with me. I'll tell you the key points of the speech. We'll play some of it. You don't need the whole thing. It was a little long. I'm not going to lie to you. It was a little long. A little boring in some parts. You know, U.N. speeches tend to be. Uh, but at least he didn't, as I remember Obama doing, stand up and say, you know, the future does not belong to those who slander the prophet of Islam. I was like, whoa, where does that where does that come from? All of a sudden, Obama put on this this theologian, uh, th- this theologian moment. And I was like, whoa, that was a bit surpri- that was a, a little bit out of nowhere. But if you recall, when Obama was elected, we were told that the. Islamic world would be much friendlier to the U.S., that there would be rapprochement with Israel, that all these great things would happen because, well, Obama was not a Muslim. He lived for a time in Indonesia, a Muslim-majority country, one that I have talked to you about here on the show uh, recently, and how it is Islamizing, and there are parts of uh, Indonesia that now are under Sharia law, and that's growing, and that should be very concerning for all of us because, well, all the reasons that you already know, uh, but... For the president, well, it was believed that President Obama would come in and there would be this much better period of time when it comes to relations between the West and the Islamic world. And that just was not there's no reason to believe that was the case. In fact, you had nothing but chaos, violence, instability and uh, further bloodshed in the Middle East. The 
biggest and most obvious foreign policy failure of the Obama administration, without question, was Syria. And that's why there's a sensitivity to it from the from the Obama uh, crew, from those who were around him, from those who were working with him on foreign policy matters. They know that their Syria record is indefensible. But when Obama spoke at the U.N., it was a lot of what you would expect from particularly a Democrat president, even more so from Obama, which is, you know, we're going to work together. We're going to do this thing. We're going to do the other thing. And we're going to all be together and we're going to push for good things. It's going to be great. And okay, a lot of multilateralism, which is a fancy way of saying, you know, we're all in this together, collective action. You know, it was kind of a community organizer for the world approach, right? That's one way to do this. Trump wasn't having any of that today. And the media was like, whoa, wait a second. Uh, he decided to just be Trump at the U.N., which means that you're going to have a, a different flavor of things, a different approach, a different, uh, a different tone. Like, for example, saying this to the assembled delegates from, uh, from all over the world. As president of the United States, I will always put America first. Just like you, as the leaders of your countries, will always and should always put your countries first. See, this is what Trump does instinctually understand that other presidents, other foreign policy uh, senior officers of you know what you know State Department or where, you know whatever Secretary of State and National Security Advisor these kinds of people this is what they don't necessarily get because when you go to these fancy foreign policy academies right when you get a degree in international relations from I mean I could sit here and rattle off all the different schools right there's a school of advanced international studies SICE at Johns Hopkins there's Harvard Kennedy, which is kind of meh. I'm just telling you guys, just so you know, meh. Uh, a lot, of, a lot of like celebrities go to the Harvard Kennedy route because it's Harvard, but it's not really. There are other programs at Harvard much harder to get into. I know all of you are like Buck. Who cares? But I'm just having some fun here for a second. There's the Fletcher School at Tufts, very, very fancy foreign policy school there. So if you go to one of those places, you are indoctrinated in this belief that you know there's a, a global community of nations and that we all need to work together in collective action and you know, we're, we're all going to be friends and everything's going to be great. Trump is saying, look, you guys do what's best for your countries already. I'm going to do the same thing. So let's just all be honest about that. And I have to say, I think that's refreshing. I think that's better. I, I don't really want a president who's going to play this game of, you know, well, you know, we have leadership, but we're also going to listen and we're going to lead and we're going to follow. We're going to lead from behind. We're going to have strategic patience. That doesn't strike me as particularly inspiring. And it certainly doesn't strike me as particularly realistic. I'd rather we just all get the nonsense out of the way and say, yeah, that's right. You're going to do what's best for your country. I'm going to do what's best for my country. Sometimes we're going to agree on stuff. Sometimes we're not. What we're not going to do is just pay the bills for the rest of the world. You already see that with some of the climate change, UN-backed IPCC report. Oh, we're going to pay for the developing world. No, no. We shouldn't do that. I don't think Trump's going to do that. And we're not going to uh, allow ourselves to get I would hope, pulled into parts of the world that Trump said today are going to hell. Major portions of the world are in conflict, and some, in fact, are going to hell. But the powerful people in this room, under the guidance and auspices of the United Nations, can solve many of these vicious and complex problems. 
hopefully the U.N. can solve some of the vicious and complex problems. I don't know what the U.N. is doing, particularly the U.N. Security Council, if not that. But one of the great lessons, I think, from my generation and those, and by my generation, I mean those who are, call it 15 to 20 years older than me and and 10 to 15 years younger than me, Uh, but for those of us who were of age to either serve in the military or serve our country in in whatever capacity after 9-11, is that we've seen that we can try to fix problems in some parts of the world, but we can't want it more than they do, meaning we can't want it more than the inhabitants, than the citizens, than the, uh, the, the, the people that have to make it all work. And we shouldn't try in most cases. It's not for us to do. We've always been, we've had this mantra against nation building in Iraq and Afghanistan. We've been doing nation building in both places. We just need to be honest about that. That, that is what has been happening. And in Iraq, it looks like we, we may have made a go of it. In Afghanistan, I still am very uh, skeptical that what we're trying now is going to be different. I was skeptical in 2009. I mean, I've been skeptical for a long time. This is nothing, nothing new for me in Afghanistan. But my, my generation, or, or the, let's call it the 9-11 generation, because a lot of you were like, uh, Buck, I was a full bird colonel when you were, you know, still in, uh, still in high school. And, you know, I, I get it, right? But the point here is uh, those of us who have been impacted by the events of 9-11 and how that's changed all the world, um, we have an understanding, I think, of what it means to try and fix some of these problems that are just not our problem to fix. And Trump has been saying that for a long time. Does he believe it in his heart? Has he always believed it? I don't really care. I just think that's an important lesson learned. And I'm hoping that he applies that to his foreign policy, although with Afghanistan, it's a little shaky right now. I'm not going to lie. And certainly to his approach when it comes to the United Nations. I I would hope, I would hope that that is the case. And I think we saw some of that today. The, the U.N. can't be a cover for the U.S. actually fixes it and then a bunch of countries get to take credit, which is often, especially on security matters, the case. And, and by the U.S., and we're talking about security, too, let's, let's keep it real. America, the Brits, the Aussies, the Canadians, you know, we've, we've got some of our friends who are right there with us, literally in the trenches, you know, literally beside us fixing these problems. But they're not all our problems to fix, and we shouldn't try to make them, or or we shouldn't take them upon ourselves as our problems to fix. So I think that was a a tone that Trump struck today. But, you know, most in the media, they really expect our president to kind of genuflect at the United Nations to this international body that, and I'm sitting here, I'm like, first of all, I don't want our president bowing. Yeah, that's right. No bowing or genuflecting to anybody at the UN. I don't even want the UN in New York City. I don't even know why it has to be on U.S. soil, to be honest with you. Isn't there an island somewhere where we could have the United Nations headquarters and just set up a big airport and not deal with all the nonsense here? But I guess that's a separate issue. We got more on this, including the single best line, the single best line from Trump's whole speech. I'll give it to you when we come back. We agreed that all responsible nations must work together to confront terrorists and the Islamic extremism that inspires them. We will stop radical Islamic terrorism because we cannot allow it to tear up our nation and indeed to tear up the entire world. So you have Trump there on radical Islamic terrorism. You notice how he says it, radical Islamic terrorism. That's really, 
that's really the, the departure there. He doesn't dance around the subject matter. He's not, oh, you know, maybe we'll maybe we'll get into uh, uh, a theological back and forth here about, you know, Islam, religion of peace, vast majority. But what about the minority? And what about jihadism? And no, no. Radical Islamic terror- terrorism it must stop. Now, is it going to stop? No, but you got to try. Uh, but that's not even the best line. I know I'm going to I'm going to hold off on the best line until after the next break, because it's going to be a whole discussion about uh, Venezuela and we'll get into a bit of Iran. Uh, but I wanted to take this opportunity to one say, please do uh, call in if you have any thoughts on Trump's speech today. Eight, four, four, nine hundred buck, eight, four, four, nine hundred two, eight, two, five. And uh, do, do give us do give us a ring. And if you have thoughts that you want to write to me instead, Facebook.com slash Buck Sexton. If you're not already, please click follow or like on the page, whatever you do to follow me on Facebook, because then you'll be in our feed and we post all kinds of stories and memes and and all sorts of stuff there. I wanted to give you a bit of a preview as well of what's coming up on the show today so that you kind of know what the uh, expectations so I can set the table for you before I deliver a fantastic meal. Yes, uh, my friend, it's a magnifique. You're going to love each girl. It's going to taste like uh, it is just drenched in butter. I always feel like butter makes everything better. One of the big things they cheat on in restaurants or one of the ways they cheat, they just fry things all the time. I'm like, you know, why are your roast potatoes so good? Restaurants like, well, we first we flash fry them and, and then and then we put them in the oven. I'm like, well, obviously. And with steakhouses and stuff, they'll oftentimes take melted butter and right when they're finishing it off, they'll just pour that butter all over the steak. Now, is it delicious? Yes, it's delicious. But I feel like that's cheating. It's like the equivalent of food roids, like you're taking steroids for food, right? You're pouring performance enhancing drug melted butter on steak. Unacceptable. Uh, except when I do it, then it's fine. You know, I, I can cheat, but I don't like what other people cheat. Uh, okay, so on the show, we're not going to be talking about cooking much today. We will be talking about, uh, in hour two, the, two of the most uh, mind-boggling decisions by one of the most elite institutions in the United States, one of the most powerful elite institutions in the United States. They've made a couple decisions recently that they have had to go back on and I want to break down what's going on there. It involves a, a traitor and a child murderer. So it's going to get a little intense, but we need to discuss this. Chelsea Manning, I think some of you already guessed the traitor. I wonder how many of you even know about the convicted child murderer and how this all affects uh, Harvard University. Um, then also we will uh, get into, so that'll be coming up in the next hour after we've gone through Venezuela, a little more North Korea, a little more on um, the Iran deal, and then a deep dive into Antifa. I've been reading the Antifa handbook, so to speak. It's uh, recently published about the history and ideology of the anti-fascist, so-called anti-fascist movement, and we'll get into that. Uh, We've got a buddy from National Review joining to talk about some of the big stories from yesterday, and uh, if you want, we'll take some calls, too. So we have a, oh, healthcare. Do I have time for healthcare today? I guess there's always time for healthcare. We'll see if I can sneak that in there too. But uh, more on the speech when we come back. I think we got started off on the wrong foot. Stand good, speed FBI. Uh, let's talk music. Do you like the Elton John song Rocket Man? Well, I only bring it up because uh, it's you. You're the Rocket Man. One of the more memorable moments from the movie The Rock, which I would put in. 
the category of the the ten most watchable absurd movies of all time. It it is a completely absurd movie. It makes sense on really no. But I'm not saying it's not awesome, everybody. I'm just saying, and it's certainly an action movie. We could action movie quote Friday. You could certainly throw the Rock my way. Although I would knock that out of the park because it's the Rock. I've seen it a million times. Uh, but yeah, that's the moment where he shoots a VX gas laden missile and hits a guy in the chest, and the, you know the whole. But the Rocket Man, it made me think of it because today Trump was saying that Kim Jong Un is is Rocket Man. I, I don't know if this is really going to catch on, and I can't even think of you. Th- it is. It's already caught on. Okay, I'm I'm behind the times. Uh, I don't. Need, I can't even think of the tune of what Rocket. I know it's an Elton John song. This is where I. This is where I'm also going to get into trouble. We're about to get back into foreign policy analysis, everybody. But let's just all let's just all put a few things, a few cards out on the table, so we can all understand where we're coming from here. Um, Elton John, overrated, but not like oh no, they're all yelling at me. Elton John, a little overrated, a little overrated. Not like not like Billy Joel or even dare I say. Uh, What's the what's the guy uh, Bob Dylan overrated the most overrated of all time, but definitely you know you, you've gotten Billy Joel and, oh and Springsteen I'm sorry it, in the most overrated of all time number one I know I'm like people are are clicking off right now people are switching their radios I should stick to foreign policy analysis um, but I've already stepped in it so I'm just gonna I'm just gonna go with it here most overrated all time is Bob Dylan second most overrated all time is. Uh, Springsteen, I, no Billy Joel. I'm being a little harsh on Billy Joel, and and actually Elton John. All right, maybe maybe I'm I'm just being controversial with the Elton John thing, but I stand behind Bob Dylan and Springsteen is overrated. That's right, I'll say it. Everyone's like Bucks. Don't no more music analysis from you. Stick to foreign policy. Fair point, everybody. Fair point. So Benjamin Net- Rocket Man. That's what he's calling Kim Jong Un. That's what got me thinking about this. Benjamin Netanyahu. In over 30 years in my experience, is what he tweeted out today, in the U.N., I have never heard a bolder or more courageous speech. Pretty pretty big stuff from B.B. there. He's, he's not holding back at all. He's going right to it. And uh, I, I think that if you were to find one moment, and I, I promise you this, and I, I follow through on my promises, one moment that was a line that was memorable, that was powerful, and that also really held up a mirror to what the United Nations is as an institution. It came when Trump said the following about the crisis, the unbelievable crisis and spiraling chaos and misery and violence in Venezuela. The problem in Venezuela is not that socialism has been poorly implemented, but that socialism has been faithfully implemented now what we didn't play here and it's because it's it it could sound like dead air because that's what it was really it was just pause it was he gave that line and he looked up and it was brilliant now did trump know this or not i think he did say what you will about the guy and obviously a lot of people say a lot of stuff he knows how to work a crowd he knows how to seize a moment he is very very good especially in front of a live audience. I mean, his his rallies are incredible, right? I mean, the energy that guy puts out. As, just as a total aside, I'm never going to make fun of his well-done steaks again because whatever his diet is, I should probably replicate it because he's got a lot of energy for a guy. And a well-done steak is like, you know you know, you know, know who, who likes well-done steak? People that get really excited about Bob Dylan CDs. Um, so, yeah, that's right. So 
he, you know, he's he's out there. He he says this and he lets it sit and and you know looks around the room as though he is waiting for applause, and no applause comes his way. There is no applause. In fact, you can see that the faces of the assembled delegates from around the world are kind of, you know, hmm. Um, you know, the, the faces of those around the room are no longer uh, able to hide the disdain, the disdain that they have for uh, what has gone on here, right? They hate that he calls out socialism that way. They hate that he is pointing to the failure in Venezuela as a failure of governance. I should note, there are a whole bunch of countries. Cuba, a, lot, a bunch of Latin American states you could point to that are that were very cozy. Russia is very cozy with Venezuela. Iran's very cozy with Venezuela. It's like the loser club of all the different countries that want to support Venezuela. And there were people in this country as well, big Pundits and and writers, particularly writers, not so much pundits, but big you know writers out there for major newspapers who were saying back in even 2012 that the Bolivarian Revolution of Venezuela was the the kind of social justice political movement that should be emulated in this country, which is just insanity. But but what we saw is that Trump was calling out socialism and saying that it was faithfully executed and that that was in fact the problem and that they did not like that in that room one bit you have a lot of you have a lot of european states with prime ministers certainly with politicians who are favorable towards socialism i mean is it not the case that monsieur francois hollande himself is a socialist very fancy socialist but he's a socialist there are others too that statism, government control of an economy, is what destroyed Venezuela. Government control of an economy is what destroyed Venezuela. I should note, government control of the economy is what destroyed Argentina. Time and time again, go back for 100 years, all the defaults and the devaluations of the currency. and It's just bad management at the top level of the government. It can destroy a country. It destroyed the economy for a long time in Argentina, and it has... It has destroyed more than just the economy. It has destroyed civil society in Venezuela. We don't hear that much about it. I, I don't know if it's because uh, the media is just so interested in the latest, you know, Russia Trump story or something. But the, the shortages that are going on in Venezuela, the rampant violence in the streets, the you know, the uh, the back and forth with the government about rewriting the constitution, the seizing of power. I mean, you can roadmap out what has happened in Venezuela. And it is the textbook case of a descent into uh, of tyranny forcing a descent into anarchy. And the motor behind this, the engine behind all of it is a government that controls the economy and that says it is operating for the benefit of the dispossessed, the poor social justice. Venezuela is a story about the destructive power of social justice. That's really what happened there. Yes, I know it's socialism and price controls and 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 seizure of assets under government auspices and, and all of that, too. But the only way you have a so-called Bolivarian revolution, the only way you have an idiot like Maduro in charge after having Chavez, also an idiot in charge, is by populism, 
based in the redistribution of wealth, helping the poor at the expense of the rich fat cats, at the expense of the Americans who are meddling. You know, that's that was the promise, the basic promise. And it has just it is just a complete and utter disaster. Complete and utter disaster. So so it is a so it is a crisis created through social justice. And that's the message that not only American liberals don't want to hear, but the rest of the world with their governments and the one world government of the U.N. certainly doesn't want to hear that. One quick thing also I wanted to get to is is Iran. This is what he had to say about Iran. The Iranian government masks a corrupt dictatorship behind the false guise of a democracy. It has turned a wealthy country with a rich history and culture into an economically depleted rogue state whose chief exports are violence, bloodshed, and chaos. The longest suffering victims of Iran's leaders are in fact its own people. Completely true and interesting uh before the possible certification, recertification, or decertification of the Iran deal, the Iran nuclear deal that the Obama administration was so desperate to do that Trump would go after Iran in such clear and uh, unabashed terms. Um, So I want to talk a bit about whether all this North Korea stuff we're hearing is going to mean much. And we're going to get into that in just a few. Stay with me. Welcome back, everybody. I know we have been uh, talking about North Korea here on Buck Sexton with America Now today. And I wanted to bring in somebody to give uh, additional perspective on this issue. We've got Michael Malice with us now. He is the author of Dear Reader, the unauthorized autobiography of Kim Jong-il. He's also the host of Your Welcome. He is a North Korea analyst extraordinaire. Michael, great to have you back. Thanks, Buck. Uh, so you have a bunch of uh, conversations going on right now at the United Nations um, and in the media. But at the U.N., people are obviously going to be talking quite a bit about what's happening with North Korea. And you have, uh, for example, Nikki Haley saying the following. I think we saw United Nations where the United States was giving over 25 percent of the funding and was being utterly disrespected, a United Nations that was bashing Israel every chance they get, a United Nations that talked a lot but didn't have a lot of action. And now we can say it is a new day at the U.N. What you are now seeing is the Israel bashing has become more balanced. You've got a United Nations that's action oriented. We've passed two resolutions on North Korea just in the last month. And you also have a United Nations that is okay. Totally so you get the, you get the idea, Michael. She's uh, she's talking about this. What would be a diplomatic win, uh, at least based on how the international relations specialists talk about it? These uh, sanctions on North Korea that the UN passed—they going to really do anything? What's what's your assessment? What's hilarious to me is how little principles conservatives frequently have, and Nikki Haley is just touting as a win that the Israel bashing will be balanced. Well, that's a that's real success, balanced Israel bashing. No, uh, the U.N. is very ineffectual. Uh, everyone knows the U.N. is very ineffectual. And in this case, it's not the U.N.'s fault. It is stra- completely and entirely the fault of the North Korean regime, the worst country on Earth, the worst government on Earth. And they are proud of the fact that, look, we are standing up to the united world. This, for them, is a source of pride. Kim Jong-un is this, you know, people make fun of him in the Western press as this, like, silly fat kid. This silly fat kid is taking on every other country combined, and there's nothing any of them seem to be able to do about it. I thought one of the most interesting uh, 
statements to come out of of Rex Tillerson recently was he was like, look, you know, this this secure the sanctions we got at the Security Council. Uh, and, you know, Nikki Haley, one of them said it doesn't matter. It's just speaking from the same sheet of music. The sanctions yeah. that they got at the U.N. Security Council recently were as as close to strangulation sanctions as they're going to get realistically. And on in a sense, they want to celebrate this or at least view this as progress. But I think they're telling us this to prepare us for the fact that if the goal here is to get North Korea to give up its nuclear program, these sanctions have an almost zero percent chance of working. I mean, I won't say it's zero, but it's definitely less than five percent. It has a chance of working in the opposite effect. But if I came to you and I said, if you don't give up your gun, I'm going to strangle you using the word strangulation. Are you going to give me your gun or are you going to buy a second gun? So sanctions don't work in the sense that if you have a government that is willing to let its population starve, if you have a government that has almost complete control of their press and they will say, look, the reason you don't have food are these sanctions. The reason you don't have clothing and housing is because of these sanctions. And they will point to these clips and say, look, the evil Americans are bragging about the fact that their sanctions are not allowing food to get to you. What impression is that typical North Korean who is a slave, who is a prisoner to this despotic regime, what impression are they going to get? In this sense, they're going to be speaking truth. Michael Malice is the author of Dear Reader, the unauthorized autobiography of Kim Jong-il. He's with us now on the North Korea situation michael where do you think this is going uh, that's what everyone you know it's the same it's the, the same basic routine whatever north korea fires a missile you get a bunch of uh you know re- retired generals on tv and reporters right. for different major newspapers are saying well you know we need smarter sanctions we need more sanctions and then we do it and then another missile gets fired and nothing really ever seems to change where do you think this is headed Yeah, I mean, these people don't have electricity for the populace. What else are you going to take away from them? And why would it cause the government to change in any possible way? What we are seeing is a game of chicken, uh, where you have two cars racing at each other as fast as they can, and it's a question of who is going to blink first. Now, there are enormous incentives for North Korea not to blink, most especially and obviously when these regimes go down, as in Iraq, as in Libya. The people at the top are usually personally killed, and with good reason. So Kim Jong-un is not in a position to say, hey, let's set North Korea free, even if he wanted to. And at the same time, if he, you look at the press over there, where it's filled with jubilation and joy, and they're having parades, and they're saying, look, our programs are getting more and more successful. And then you look at the press here, where everyone is freaking out and panicking. They're controlling the narrative. So this is another reason for them to continue along this path, because no matter what the West is saying or doing, they are still defying us, and they are in a very, very dark sense winning the argument. So I don't know what it would take, honestly, which is something that most of those people who go on TV don't have, which I don't even have, is hostage negotiation techniques. What does it take to get a killer to hand over his weaponry? This is a very sophisticated question to ask and to answer, and this is something that most people who don't don't even understand the North Korean regime at all certainly are in a position to answer. Uh, we had Secretary of State Rex Tillerson speaking about this on, on the, some of the Sunday shows, and he, and he mentioned specifically the four no's in dealing with right. North Korea. Here's what they are. The United States' job towards North Korea is to deny North Korea possession of a nuclear weapon, and the ability to deliver that weapon. Uh, Our strategy has been to undertake this peaceful pressure campaign, we call it, uh, enabled by the four no's. The four no's being that we do not seek regime change, we do not seek a regime collapse, 
We do not seek an accelerated reunification of the peninsula, and we do not seek a reason to send our forces north of the demilitarized zone. So the peaceful pressure campaign is built around in a, in putting together the largest and strongest international coalition we can to send the same message to North Korea and to North Korea's neighbors, China and Russia, that this is the policy of the rest of the world. And you've seen that expressed now in two unanimous Security Council resolutions. Okay, yes, you you get the the idea, Michael. Uh, The the four four no's, um, no regime change. Uh, what what is the yes? I mean, he went through all these things. I'm like, so so we have a North Korean Kim <laughs> dynasty in in perpetuity because no regime change, no no nothing. I mean, you just go down the list. And and in, uh, right, and honestly, for, uh, the real concern is regime ch- is not regime change in the Iraq sense, but in the sense of just giving these people just a measure of food and education and maybe a passport. But at the same time, how is North Korea going to trust Secretary Tillerson when, at the same time, the president and I'm not I'm not saying he did the wrong thing. At the same time, the president is saying we will rain down fire and fury on you, the likes the world has never seen. And people attacked him for that, but they were threatening to, to attack Guam, and that never happened. So maybe that is a better technique than peaceful. Again, no, we're trying everything at once, and nothing seems to be working. At the same time, we all have to realize that North Korea is a closed dictatorial society. So much of this negotiation, and you see it slip out sometimes in the press, much of the negotiation is happening behind the scenes. There are back channels operations happening all the time, which allows us and them to put things on the table that would allow both nations to save face. So behind a lot of this bluster, there is diplomacy going on because these people are very conniving, very wicked, but they're not dumb. Much to discuss in the Freedom Hunt today, team. Thank you so much for being here with me. 844-900-BUCK, 844-900-2825. Got some calls up on North Korea. Wanted to take them before we move on to uh, a few topics this hour, including uh, the two decisions, admissions or uh, fellowship decisions, depends on which one we're talking about at Harvard University and what that tells us about the state of the academy. And be, But before I get to that, I, I think we need to go a bit into the Georgia Tech situation. Last night, there's a police car lit on fire. I mean, they, they firebombed a car and uh, a police car at Georgia Tech because of this incident with a student that occurred a couple days ago. This comes after a few days of violent protests in St. Louis after an officer was acquitted there in a shooting. I think the shooting was 2011. The shooting was a while ago. Um, so anyway, we'll, we'll get into some of that. But I know we've got people who want to talk about North Korea. So let's do that first. Uh, Richard in West Virginia on WWVA. Hey, Richard. Well, I wanted to give you my uh, overrated artist, but you're done with that, so I'll just move on to what I call about. No, no, you can give me an over. You can give me an overrated. Art. We got time, Richard. Well, who, who's the most overrated musician of all time? Well, I'm not sure if he is. I just wanted to know if you knew uh, Jack Taddy. You ever heard of him? Who? Jack Taddy. No, I've never heard He's of this person, bad. so I don't know how overrated he can be. But North Korea okay, talk. What do you got on your mind on North Korea, Richard? As far as North Korea, I wanted to ask you this. This is something I've heard many times before, probably from you too. You talk about North Korea, I mean, President Trump. I guess the first question I can ask you, do you believe in just about everything he says, talks about North, especially North Korea, the little fat dictator, even the local host around here talk about him. Uh, that's basically always this little fat man that isn't a threat to anybody and he's just popping off just like, uh, you could just say to him, just go away, boy, you bother me, that he really isn't going to do anything. He's all more bark than he is bite. 
And it's the same to me that North Korea, I might be getting them mixed up with China, where you see all the, it seems like they have a lot of troops that are well-trained. So I guess I could just ask you, I am interested in what Trump says a lot of the stuff. I really almost believe everything that he says. I'm drinking the Kool-Aid. Uh, but I just want to ask you, is North Korea somebody that the United States doesn't have to worry about? Well, yeah, Richard, there there are real concerns about North Korea for us that, that go well beyond the, the, the Korean Peninsula. Let me just say that if, in my opinion, if the U.S. were to withdraw its military presence from South Korea and break our military promise, break publicly break our alliance with South Korea, North Korea would invade and it would happen quickly. Uh, I don't know how quickly, but it would happen. So North Korea's posture towards South Korea is not just saber rattling. It's not just to uh, for internal stability reasons, although that's actually a reason to invade. Uh, there, there's more to it than that. I mean, North Korea, I think, has a million man standing army. Uh, it has nuclear. It has nuclear weapons. It's working on its missile technology. It has all kinds of other very nasty weapons we don't often talk about, but that are are banned under, uh, you know, banned under different treaties. So. I mean, North Korea is a problem for South Korea, to be sure, um, and it becomes a problem for all of us when you consider the possibility of proliferation. If North Korea were to sell in part or in whole its missile and or nuclear weapons technology to other rogue states, the one that comes to mind first is Iran, but there are others as well, or even even non-state actors or terrorist entities, then it becomes a big problem for us. And that would be a way, I mean, we talk about, oh, North Korea would never hit us because we would annihilate them, and that came up today at the U.N. Well, if it's not North Korea that hits us, if it's, you know, if it's the Islamic State that has gotten its hands on, and I know this starts to sound like a Tom Clancy novel, but these are very real concerns that people have about, about proliferation, about non-proliferation efforts, and that's when, it becomes a, that's when it becomes an issue for everybody, right? Because what, what are you going to do? I mean, if ISIS let, detonates a nuke in a U.S. city, we're going to we're going to evaporate North Korea because they gave it to them because we say so. I mean, it, it gets complicated very quickly, never mind the awful humanitarian cost to all this. Well, that's what I just think. Like I said, I hear so many people just say, I'm using that term again, just go away, boy, you bother me. It's like that he's not a threat. But if they keep talking about him all the time like they do, it seems like he must be a threat. Because if you if you were a threat, why would the, all these people, I guess, like you and others, national, local, everybody talk about him? If he wasn't a threat, you could just ignore him. But it seems like he must have something going for him. And uh, yeah, it's really no. That he's he's a, he's a he's a legit concern, Richard. And I, I appreciate you holding for a while. And thank you for calling in. Uh, he he's a real concern. North Korea is is an anachronism in a sense. It's really a holdover to the Cold War to the Soviet era. And it's the part of the Cold War that haunts us really the most uh, obvious part of the Cold War that that haunts us to this day. It it just never really stopped. Uh, It's that's never gone away. Um, Do I think North Korea is going to uh, come after us openly anytime soon? No. But when you have it, when you as this is why I was talking about Escape from Camp 14 yesterday, which I do really, really recommend to all of you listening. It is it's tough reading. He talks about. Uh, needing to uh, catch rats to survive because there's a there's a protein deficiency that people in the camp would get that would cause all these terrible symptoms and you can die from. But rats were a necess- uh, literally catching rats as a kid was a necessary source of protein for him. I mean, the stories you read in this book are 
They will haunt you. They will stay with you. But a government that will do that as a, as systematically to its own people is capable of anything. That's why I was telling you that yesterday about Escape from Camp 14. That's why it's such an important story for Americans to hear and to know. Because we're not dealing with people making decisions here who are going to say, whoa, we would never do that. I mean, that would really, that could really, that's really nasty. That's, that would harm a lot of innocent people. North Korea doesn't care. North Korea doesn't care at all. Um, Todd in North Carolina on WPTI. What's going on, Todd? I just want to talk about North Korea, man. Yes, sir. Basically, what I got to say is everybody's talking about North Korea, but the main sponsor of North Korea is China. And without China, North Korea would not exist from the very get-go. That's the main reason we stopped in, in the Korean War is because of China. That's not... that's. We're not hearing that. That's true. If, if the Chinese hadn't crossed the Yalu River in force and, and come to the aid of the North Koreans, we would have a unified Korean peninsula and it would probably be a prosperous democracy. We wouldn't have all these problems. So it really is. I mean, you're right in drawing a direct line. To, this is on China. I mean, the, the fact that we're in the situation room right now. But in terms of the leverage that we have, Todd, and I think this is what you're, you're, you're going for now, um, our ability to get the Chinese to put due pressure on North Korea to get them to stop what they're doing uh the, the chinese are not completely aligned with us on this i mean they're aligned to a degree and they won't be they won't be aligned with us i mean <laughs> that's right i mean if you're china I do you really want do you really want a, a large populous peninsula that is contiguous to your landmass that is a giant pro-us military base i mean that's not what korea would be if it were unified but to some to some in the chinese military leadership i think that's how they would see it I mean, but that, that's, that's China's stick. They're just waving, waving North Korea out there. Anytime they want to do whatever they want to do, well, let's wake up freaking North Korea. Oh, that's right. I mean, North, North you know, Korea throw, is... Uh... Throw a couple of missiles out there, and you're going to forget everything about us. I mean, oh, yeah. That's, that's exactly what we're facing. And, and, and you don't... I mean, I understand diplomacy and everything, but all you have to do is put the word out there. Just put the word out. I mean, what do you mean? Put Jesus the word out. Right. I mean, you got, you got, I mean, you got people calling into the show, you know, talking about North Korea, North Korea, North Korea. It's not North Korea without China. They do not exist. They, they are nothing. They are nothing. They starve to death in place. That's all they are. I mean, South Korea is a foe. Right, but we obviously, you know, the, the, all the stuff we talk about when it comes to, Todd, when we talk about North Korea and how we have all the options on the table and we could we could annihilate North Korea if that became the decision of the, of the United States government and military, uh, that's not a conversation we want to have about China, right? So there are clear, there are clear limits to how much pressure we can put on China, and I think that that's, that's what we're seeing right now. Look, we, we got these U.N. Security Council resolutions through China and Russia were okay oh, with them, great. but they weren't. Yeah, I know it's not going to do anything, but they weren't even as strong as they could have been because China and Russia said no. And you know what we say? To them? What, well, what do I we mean, say to them? First off, what is the United Nations but a bunch of communists standing in line? 
that's all they are. They're waiting to be communist. If they are, I mean that that's a little harsh. Already, <laughs> I don't them. think they're necessarily communist. That's but, all they are. I mean, uh, I, I, I wouldn't I wouldn't go that I mean, far. It's it's the League of Nations. It's the League of Nations. Yeah, I know it's a Woodrow Wilson invention. No, I get all that, but I mean they're, they're not communists. I mean we got we you know, the Brits I mean, are there, the Canadians are there. We got we got uh, brothers and sisters out of that audience. But Todd, I got we've got a couple more calls I want to get to, and then I want to talk about what happened in uh, Georgia Tech last night. So Shields high, and I thank you for calling. Ted in Florida on WFLA. Hey Ted. How's it going? It's good, sir. Thank you for your call. Uh, I'd like to know what you think of the U.S. dropping out of the U.N. and removing all funding, if that would have an effect. Uh, It would have an effect on the U.N. for sure, because I think they'd be billions of dollars uh, short of what they're used to in their budget. And, you know, I, I understand this because there's a... Americans, we understand, not all of us, but certainly conservatives and constitutionalists and and a lot of Republicans, although not all, uh, view international government as as on its face problematic. You know, it's it's inherently fraught with risks to liberty. And so we don't trust the U.N. And I understand that. And the the second we start being told that there's going to you know, the U.N. is. It wants to put election monitors at our elections and the U.N. wants to tell us what to do with climate. And and we feel that, dare I say, globalist (laughs) hand involved in things. uh, We have concerns. But the U.N. on the other side of it, it does give us some leverage and and open uh, open channels for discussions with countries that are helpful. And, you know, it's uh, it's kind of meh. I mean, I, I don't think it does as much as people want it want to believe that it does. But I also think it's a re- relatively speaking, um, the risks of involvement in the U.N. are pretty low and the benefits that we get from it are not high, but there are some. There are some. Well, I, I think that, you know, the last caller said that, uh, you know, he thought it was a, a communist kind of thing. I, I don't see it as communist. It's more socialist. Yeah, I mean, communism and, is to communism is now you're talking about a, a dictatorship of the proletariat and a revolutionary committee to oversee the, uh, the, the class war and the expansion or the elimination of the bourgeoisie. And I mean, there's communism is a pretty specific thing. And there has to be a a uh, you know, we have to be clear about what it really it's not just socialism. Right. There's although the original communists, when we think of the Soviet Union, refer to themselves as socialists. Uh, but there are some distinctions that I think are, are worth being made. Although I like calling people a commie just as a pejorative. It's kind of fun. But, Ted, shield time, and thank you for the call. Um, Georgia Tech last night, some stuff going on there because of a shooting. And then there was the verdict in St. Louis. So a lot of unrest recently, or at least a lot of reports of unrest, uh, protests, and and all that. I, I want to talk to you about this this shooting in uh, on a college campus in Georgia Tech and how it led to protesters firebombing a police vehicle on campus because when i look at the facts of this i'm like what what are they what are they thinking uh what are the protesters but we will get there and also next hour deep dive into antifa ideology and history where it comes from i think you'll find that to be a worthwhile worthwhile uh expenditure of our time here on the show um 844-900 buck 844-900-2825 is back with you all uh, team in the Freedom Hut and I want to talk to you about uh, what happened at Georgia Tech last night. I was just getting ready for, well, honestly getting ready for bed. I was looking through the social media stuff to see what's going on in the world and saw this photo of a police cruiser that was on fire on a college campus. I was like, what is going on here? 
And I, I remember reading about the initial story. For those of you who may not know what happened, let me give you a little bit of the background, and then we'll get into what's going on here. Um, and it had to do with this uh, individual named Scott Schultz. and Or, sorry, pardon me, Scout Schultz. Um, and what, am I getting that wrong? No, yeah, okay, Scout Schultz. And I'm looking at the team here to make sure I'm not going to mess up the name. And he was uh, shot, although he identified as non-binary and intersex and preferred the pronouns they and them. Uh, This was a uh, 21-year-old male, so I will refer to him as a he because they, for no other reason, is a problem because it is plural, not singular. Uh, and, and that's just too that's that's too much. Um, and look, I know that this person just lost his life and this is very serious. But I I am struck by how the media has to contort itself to try and come up with ways to stay consistent here. And, and they can't. It always runs into inconsistency. All right. So what happened was that the, Mr. Uh, Scout Schultz was had a history of mental illness uh, and it look, it's a very sad situation. Okay. It just, no matter, no matter how you look at this, it's, it's tragic. And I feel really badly for uh, Schultz's family. Um, but he was a, a big uh, proponent or a you know, member on campus of these different LGBTQ groups. And he was uh, walking around camp. He had called in, a threat to the police that there was somebody walking around with a knife. And then, and th- we have the audio of this. And you're not going to hear the actual, uh, I don't think you're going to hear the moment, uh, but you're, this is what he was yelling at, the, at a police officer, at a campus police officer, right before he was shot. But uh, just content warning on this because it's, it's disturbing stuff. Cops are pleading with him. Drop the knife. He did. He had a, a utility tool in his hand, not actually a knife, but I, I mean, a utility tool at night in the dark when someone's been ca- when someone ha- he called it in himself that there was a, a person with a knife walking around campus. I, this is what when I was in the NYPD, they would call suicide by cop. It's I mean, and that's, I think, the the terminology that anybody would use. I mean, he was uh, trying to force the police to draw down and shoot him. And that is what happened. And it's a tragedy. It's a tragedy that somebody with this uh, men- with mental illness would want that to happen to uh, to himself, um, would push for that to happen. Tragedy for the officer. The officer didn't want it. I think as a campus police officer that day, didn't, didn't want to shoot anybody. Just wants to keep people safe and go home. There has no interest in shooting some, uh, we call them in the NYPD an EDP, emotionally disturbed person, was the uh, technical term that we used here. And so you'd hear reports of an EDP, and that was not usually a report that the uh, uniformed officers that I was dealing with wanted to take uh, because you just never knew. You never, you know, an EDP could be somebody in the corner who's shaking and crying and wouldn't harm anyone, or an EDP could be, standing on the edge of a roof and trying to grab somebody nearby to jump with them, right? I mean, you just don't know. So uh, this uh, Scout Schultz, this uh, this young man, was shot and killed. And then there were all these protests. And the protests last night were, well, this is how the Washington Post reported on it. A police cruiser was torched, protesters were arrested, and at least one Georgia Tech officer 
was evacuated by ambulance Monday night, just two days after a student was fatally shot by campus police outside a dormitory building. What are these protesters? What are they protesting? What do they think they're doing? I just see this as more of the ideologically driven anti-cop animus that you see on the left, which has been this has been pushed by the media so much. Those who are going to say things like, oh, he didn't have to he didn't have to get shot. Uh, I can tell you that even from the the limited uh, training that I've had on these matters, but I have had real training on it. Someone's got a knife and they're within uh, they're within 20 or 30 feet of you. And they want to get to you, and you've all you've got is a sidearm. You've got a pistol. Uh, there's a very good chance they're actually going to be able to stab you before you can put that person down. So, someone who is emotionally disturbed has a knife and says and is yelling, "Shoot me! Shoot me! Kill me!" I mean, uh, it's a lot of uh, it's asking a lot of an officer to put himself or herself in harm's way and not actually fire on the threat. And that is what happened. Well, team, I had talked to you. I think. I mentioned, at least on air, uh, that Chelsea Manning, formerly Bradley Manning, which is now called dead naming when you state that somebody is somebody is uh, well had a had a different name at one point, uh, and this is very much looked down upon in left wing circles. But that Chelsea Manning had been invited to be some kind of an adjunct fellow of one kind. I don't know, whatever. Adjunct fellow, that sounds like a microaggression. An adjunct person, an adjunct human being, sir, thank you, thank you. Uh, But just making sure the team knows that we we don't refer to adjunct fellows. I don't know what they're going to do, you know, like different fellowships. And how are you going to apply for fellowships now on college camp? You're going to have to apply for like human ships. Um, But okay. So and there was an outcry, including from some very senior former government officials associated with Harvard and they left. And okay, fine. And Harvard's a big deal. It's like a 20 plus billion dollar endowment. Most famous university in the world. People think the most elite university in the world. You know, I know Yaleys and Stanford folks are very upset at me right now. But nonetheless, are they Stanfordians? I have no idea. What do you call a Stanford? A Stanfordite? Stanfordian? I have no idea. Um, didn't apply to Stanford, don't anything about it. So, okay. So that went away. Yale had to backtrack on that one. They're like, all right, fine. And then Chelsea Manning tweeted out something along the lines of, see, it's a police state because they're not, they're not allowing this person to be a fellow at Harvard. Well, being a fellow at Harvard is an elite thing, or at least it's supposed to be. So you would think that because of the competitive nature of it and also the elevation that occurs to be associated with harvard that's why people pay all this money to go to some of these different schools there look i was thinking about going to some of these fancy sounding schools to get an mba just so somebody would hire me right what am what do most mbas i know learn in their mba programs how to socialize and drink beer if they didn't learn that already in college not a lot of of uh, deep and uh, and rigorous well depends on the school i guess anyway so Chelsea Manning is no longer going to be a fellow at Harvard. Okay, so that was one. This is just in the last week or two. But there's another story that I think is even more shocking about Harvard and what now diversity really means in academia to the left and what kinds of virtue signaling and virtue, virtue destruction or virtue debasing 
they are willing to engage, right? They virtue signal in that, look at us, we're so diverse, we're so great, we're amazing, we're Harvard. And they virtue destroy or debase by doing things that make it seem like there's no need to be virtuous, right? There's, there's no need to be a, an honest and ethical person. Harvard will still find a job for you if you fit in to a leftist narrative. So there is this uh, woman, and this is from, from decade. this is a decades-old case. Her name is, and she was just written about a few days ago in the New York Times, big piece on her on her situation, and it's called From Prison to Ph.D., The Redemption and Rejection of Michelle Jones. And it's really, uh, it's supposed to be, the whole piece is about redemption and about how amazing the work she did in prison was. They don't go into much detail about her crime, uh, and they talk about how Harvard University accepted her into their Ph.D. program in American Studies, which I think is under the History Department. So she was accepted into a, a, a program that I think accepts like 10 out of 300 applicants. A lot of other people apply. This couldn't get in. They take her and then they end up not taking her. And in here's what we uh, here's what we find out. Well, for one, Harvard writes a total of in this piece. I think it's two lines about her actual crime and her crime was that she was a really a, a, a mother who never wanted to be a mother and was completely uh, neglectful and abusive towards her child and actually, and this is what happened, beat her four-year-old child to death and left the body to rot and then hid the body and still to this day it has never been found. So that's what she did. And she was sentenced to 50 years in prison for that. 50 years, which sounds about right in terms of the sentencing. Some of you would probably understand want more and go to even the next level. But it was a very, a very um, heinous crime and it was punished severely. uh, But she got out after 20 years and she did some historical research when we are uh, sorry, historical research when she was in uh, in the in prison. And. What we find out is that Harvard takes her and then there is a backlash. And the backlash is something like the following, quote, we didn't have some preconceived idea about crucifying Michelle, said one of the two American studies professors quoted in the New York Times article. But frankly, we knew anyone could just punch her crime into Google and Fox News would probably say that PC liberal Harvard gave 200 grand of funding to a child murderer who also happened to be a minority. I mean, come on, end quote. Well, maybe that's because Harvard was about to give $200,000 of funding to a child murderer in a prestigious Ph.D. program. I'm not saying that people aren't allowed to try and find redemption and you've served your debt to society and all that. I understand all that. I get it. But this was a heinous crime. And Harvard's Ph.D. program is not a, you know, a, a simple job that allows someone to just sort of feed themselves. And I would also note that any of these sanctimonious liberals at Harvard or anywhere else who would take somebody who has a criminal background, would they take somebody who was accused of sexual, or I'm sorry, who was guilty of sexual assault? Would the Stanford swimmer who got a a few month sentence for his sexual assault, that was a huge story across the country, if he did some really interesting research, do you think Harvard would take him? Never mind even somebody for a serious crime. Do you think Harvard would take a student who had been expelled previously for plagiarism? No, of course not. No, that's, that's too much. 
So now in Harvard's PhD program, I just want to understand their ethical limitations here, their ethical limits. They won't take a plagiarist, but they'll take a child murderer. And then they get all, you know, angry about it when people point out that that's a bit strange, isn't it? It's not just strange, it's obtuse, it's disgusting. And Harvard is among many institutions here that really needs a reality check. All right, team, welcome back to the Freedom Hut. We've got a lot to discuss today, including the continued uh, fallout from some of those breaking news stories that I was able to tell you about on air yesterday. Manafort being told, at least according to reports, that he may be indicted. Well, we've got a a lawyer and uh, analyst and all-around patriot and veteran here to join us to talk about all this. David French is with us. He's a senior writer for National Review, an attorney and a veteran of Operation Iraqi Freedom. He's got a piece up on NationalReview.com. Manafort to be indicted. Was Trump Tower wiretapped? First thoughts on two big scoops. Mr. French, great to have you back. Well, thanks so much for having me. I appreciate it. All right. First thoughts on the two scoops are... Rocky Road and mint chocolate chip. Sorry, go ahead. Bad joke. <laughs> well, those would be a, a tastier two scoops. These these are pretty grim. Uh, you know, look the, the two the two things quickly are that uh, looks there now. New York Times reported that uh, that investigators told Manafort uh, Mueller's investigators told Manafort he was likely to be indicted. And uh, then there's CNN scoop that apparently Manafort was subject to a FISA warrant. Uh, at two separate occasions, one starting around 2014, another one starting again in the middle of the campaign and went into some point this year. And guess what um, may have resulted in conversations between Manafort and Trump being recorded. We don't know that, but it may have happened. So both of those things are both interesting and disturbing. And Manafort, now, I, I told people about those breaking stories yesterday on air. and I'm just wondering, as as we've all been able to look a bit more at the sourcing on all this and, and the context of the reporting, uh, h- how worried do you think Manafort should be right now if uh, if you're in his shoes? Are, are you losing some sleep over this at this point? <laughs> I'm not sleeping at all <laughs> if, if, I'm, if I'm Manafort at this point. Um, you know, look, his house was raided. Um, that's pretty well established. The sourcing on the New York Times story does not seem to be coming from the Mueller camp. It seems to be coming from... Um, it seems to be coming from perhaps attorneys or witnesses who've been subject to the investigation so far. Uh, so it seems relatively solid. Uh, in a raid like the one that was, un- that was uh, launched on, on Manafort's home is not something that's just casually done. Uh, so, you know, I think that given what we know about Manafort, given his long history of foreign, quite tangled foreign relationships, uh, I, I would be very worried if I were him. Now, it's really important to say this. When I say if I'm Paul Manafort, I'm very worried. That's not the same thing as saying, therefore, he's going to be indicted for colluding with Russia in this election. Um, one thing that's pretty clear about the coverage so far is that it looks like um, Mueller is investigating financial transactions that may have nothing to do with the 2016 election. So when I say he may be indicted or I'm, I'm, I'd have sleepless nights if I were him, that's primarily what I'm referring to. Yeah, and, and this is – I find this troubling because if the investigation is about Russia collusion and they just decide that they're going to do a deep dive into Manafort's taxes and they don't find anything having to do with Russia necessarily, 
is that justice really being served? I mean, I, I guess, but it's not really what was supposed to happen here. It's not really the purpose of, of these extraordinary prosecutorial and investigative powers that have been gathered together by Mueller. Well, you know, if you're going to be investigating ties to Russia and collusion with Russia, one of the first things you're going to do is you're going to be starting to lift rocks to see if there's anything financial uh, that would give some sort of financial motive. So I'm not necessarily bothered that uh, that Mueller might be finding financial crimes and prosecuting financial crimes. The, the, the problem that I see is I can easily see a world in which financial crimes are found, and then that is turned in the court of a public opinion into some sort of conclusive allegation or an allegation that, that, that collusion occurred or that the administration is uh, illegitimate. Uh, we got to be really careful about what the facts are here and, you know, what, what, if anything, that the special counsel finds. But as a, as a general matter, if you're, if you're looking under rocks to see links with foreign powers and you discover criminal activity, I don't have a problem with uh, prosecuting it. Yeah, I just don't like the IRS. But I, I know, I know, and you're a lawyer <laughs> and, you know, the, the law, I get it, but I just, you know, IRS, I, I had to pay my estimated taxes for the last quarter, so I'm in a particularly foul mood when it comes to the revenue service in this country, but I digress. Um, David, uh, I want to switch gears a little bit with you. We're speaking to David French, senior writer for National Review. He's got another piece up on nationalreview.com, one of my favorite sites. To defeat campus craziness, don't just treat symptoms, cure the disease. We're going to be talking about, about Antifa and campus craziness in the next hour, but how do we cure the disease? Yeah, well, you know, I, I, one of the biggest problems with the, camp, with the campus is the gatekeepers. In other words, uh, you have campuses that are set up from the ground up that are biased in favor of progressives and radical progressives. So uh, if you're a conservative faculty member, you have very little chance uh, especially in the humanities or social sciences, of getting a fair shake. Uh, admissions committees for colleges are, in many subtle ways, biased against conservative students, especially religiously conservative students. And so what ends up happening is you get these environments that are overwhelmingly progressive, just overwhelmingly. And then we say, oh, well, look at that radical professor or this group of radical students. Let's do something about them. Well, you're just going to be playing whack-a-mole with these radicals unless we can begin to reform the very process that turns these these institutions of higher education into ideological cocoons and ideological bubbles. And it's a tall order, but I, I'm just trying to warn people that when we're talking about what's happening on campus, the problem isn't just a few radicals. The problem isn't a weird professor here and there. The problem is a system that's built from the ground up to be biased in favor of one point of view. I like to tell people this because they, they don't believe me, and then I'm like, no, no, I, 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 can, I can actually point you to the, to the literature. At my own college, Amherst, which is not considered radical along the same lines as, uh, as like Reed College in Oregon or Oberlin or there's some Wesleyan, which I love to pick on, love to make fun of Wesleyan. <laughs> um, but at Amherst, there were more socialist-slash-Marxist-slash-anarchists on the faculty in the humanities than there were open Republicans. That was a fact. Oh, absolutely. I mean, I, I would say at schools of Amherst quality um, all, all around the country, that is a general rule is going to be an absolute fact. When I was at Harvard Law School, the number of people who are these sort of neo-Marxist critical legal study scholars, they were... They, they were not the majority of the faculty, but they were enough to where they set the dominant tone in the faculty. 
And I could count on the fingers, less than half the fingers of one hand, the number of actual Republican faculty members when I was there. I mean, it, it, the disparities, just if people un, fully understood the disparities, it would blow their minds. I mean, when we say ideological cocoon or ideological bubble, we mean it. And one more thing, David, before we let you go, and everyone should check out David's pieces up on nationalreview.com where he talks about both the big bombshells from yesterday in the news cycle with Manafort and the Russia collusion investigation and also campus craziness stuff, which we'll be getting into more detail in the next hour. I'm going to give you a deep dive on Antifa ideology coming up here. But, David, I think one surprise for some folks, and I put myself in the not surprise but a little like, hmm, on this, is that the left hasn't really... They they haven't... uh, pushed back against this shutdown speech mentality and even Antifa itself as much as I would think they would have at this point, given the uh, behavior at Berkeley, given the attack against um, Charles Murray at Middlebury. They're not really distancing uh, distancing themselves from this as much as I kind of thought they would have to. Well, there was some distancing going on, and you would see an increasing number of professors speaking up who are progressive professors and worried about free speech. But then something happened a, few, a couple of months ago that really put a screeching halt to this and gave Antifa a lot of credibility, and that thing is Charlottesville. And so when, that, when the, um, car, you know, the car terror attack happened in Charlottesville, you had this weird response, which wasn't just how horrible that terror attack was and how evil that terror attack was. But then they also began to lionize, at least some people, members of Antifa. I mean, do you, you know, remember, see, they, were, they were compared to the soldiers who stormed the beaches at Normandy? I mean, that was, <laughs> were, that was one of the most appalling memes I've seen in widespread usage ever. Oh, it was stunning. So, uh, yeah, they were beginning to distance themselves, some some folks, and a lot of fair-minded folks were, and a lot of fair-minded folks still are, but what will really depress you is if you go, uh, if you follow, say, for example, Megan McArdle on Twitter wrote a really thoughtful piece against Antifa, and you see the reaction that that piece has gotten, where people are saying, yes, I believe I should, I should have the ability and the right to punch and, and inflict physical violence on people that, who disagree with me, the number of people who believe this, and in one of these... Um, one of these surveys, I believe the very survey you're referring to, is up to 19% of students agreed that you could use violence to shut down students. Yeah. 19%. We're going to get into that so poll a little more in the next hour. I mean, it's, it's astonishing, isn't it, David? I mean, you, you would think that this, this is like when people are, are going around doing the polling in some foreign countries about, you know, I mean, you don't really support Osama bin Laden or al-Qaeda, right? I mean, we're looking for no's there. But you get like 8 or 9% in some countries that are like, no, nah, you know, bin Laden's not so bad. You're like, Wow. Not supposed to say that, but that's kind of the way it is on college campuses here with punching speakers you don't like. I think we're all expecting that everyone on a college campus is supposed to say no, but they're not. Um, David French, everybody on National Review. David, uh, thanks so much for making the time today, man. Great to have you on. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. Uh, Team, we are going to talk about Antifa, a deep dive on Antifa ideology coming up, as well as that poll that David mentioned. I'll give you some more details on that. And also advice for for college-age people that the left does not want you to hear, and then my advice about napping. All of that coming up. You know, they show up in the helmets and the black masks, and they've got clubs and they've got everything. Antifa! Antifa! Ah, yes, there you have Trump talking about Antifa! That was at the uh, rally in Arizona some weeks ago. But Antifa has become a, a term that 
a lot of folks that read the news or paying attention to what's going on social media, we've all become pretty familiar with it, or at least we hear it, right? Antifa, anti-fascism. And the left is trying very hard to both uh, create the perception that they don't buy into Antifa while also maintaining that, you know, ultimately that they kind of agree with Antifa, right? So they, they don't necessarily want to go along with Antifa's tactics, but its ideology is somehow necessary. I mean, this is because the left-wing base is largely sympathetic to Antifa. And in fact, Antifa is a part of the left-wing base in this country, in, in the Democrat Party. Uh, there was a, a video that you may have seen, and it's it's pretty troubling. It's Antifa using, this was just posted today, using social media to track down a guy in Seattle who, look, he's an idiot, okay? He's wearing a, he's wearing a swastika armband. He does seem to be holding himself up as a neo-Nazi, which is a disgrace and is pathetic as well as uh, horrific. But that doesn't mean you get to punch somebody. And this is where Antifa becomes a problem for the rest of us. They think that they are allowed to engage in uh, physical violence against people if they don't like their belief system. They can destroy property. They can shout and shut down speech that they don't like by acting up, by throwing what is essentially a, a tantrum and that, it, that they have an obligation to hunt down people that they don't uh, like what they say or they don't like what they stand for and attack them physically, I mean, to break the law. And they're open about this. They said that violence is necessary. Violence is not, in the case of Antifa, a, an accident or the choice that is made by some faction within the broader movement. These Antifa groups are specifically trying to find so-called Nazis to punch, in this case, somebody actually wearing a Nazi armband, and to engage in Nazi punching. I refuse to do what the left does and just focus on the most superficial talking points and engage in uh, mockery of political opponents without understanding. Right? This is what the left does. They just say that everyone on the right is bigoted and racist and dumb and misogynistic, uh, I actually try to spend some time getting to know what is it that the left thinks it is accomplishing here? What do they really believe? And so I have been reading, and am soon to finish, uh, something called Antifa, the Anti-Fascist Handbook by a, uh, a former Occupy Wall Street uh, organizer, which I'm going to return to this in a moment, because I've been telling you all along that this is just a rebranding of Occupy Wall Street, which was just a rebranding of the anarchist anti-WTO protests in Seattle. And Black Lives Matter is merely a faction from within that same leftist protest movement that existed long before Mike Brown and Ferguson and all of that happened. I saw the seeds of everything that's happening today with Antifa in the Occupy Wall Street movement. In fact, I wrote a book about it. Uh, it was an ebook called Occupy American Spring. I attended every one of the major uh, Occupy Wall Street rallies in New York City, including some that got quite violent and destructive with uh, black bloc people in attendance, which is just Antifa before they were calling themselves that. And I was there the night that Zuccotti Park was cleared out, and there was a lot of screaming and uh, people getting wrestled to the ground, and, and, and it was a mess. 
But I've seen the slogans before. I've seen the rhetoric before. And so it was really interesting to me, having covered Occupy Wall Street so closely in person here in New York City, and then seeing that it is an Occupy Wall Street organizer from New York named Mark Bray, who has taken it upon himself to write a serious, and I give credit where it's due, it's a serious attempt to explain the ideology of Antifa from an incredibly sympathetic and pro-Antifa perspective, but at least it's not just some uh, semi-literate clown who is spewing slogans without doing any research and, and having any real understanding of the underlying political philosophy of Antifa. So here's what here's what I think you should know from this Antifa, the anti-fascist handbook, which I've said I will. Uh, I'm honest with you about what I've read and haven't. I'm almost finished with it. I, I will be done with it either tomorrow or the next day, depending on my reading schedule. I'm also spending some time uh, getting deeper into some books on North Korea. I'm also researching for a Lepanto battle show that we're going to be doing in October because the overwhelming consensus from all of you is that you really like the history deep dives. Uh, I had... I had one one person telling me don't do that. And then, uh, I don't know, a hundred or 200 telling me that they love it. So we're going to do a little more, although what format remains to be seen. But there will be more history deep dives coming your way from the Freedom Hut. Uh, But back to Mark Bray and this book, Antifa, the Anti-Fascist Handbook. Uh, I I give him credit. This was an honest, uh, from the perspective of a partisan, right, from from an Antifa supporter, this was an honest attempt to explain what this movement is. Uh, he, he is a partisan. He's not objective, but at least he's writing about this in a way that there's something. You know, usually with these movements, they always say, oh, we don't have an ideology. Oh, this is, it, it's all decentralized, delocalized. That's a dodge. Just with Occupy Wall Street, there were organizers. There was money involved, and some of you are like, Soros money. But there is money involved. Of course there is. Somebody has to pay for those shiny placards that they show up with at these, uh, these protests. But here's some, here's some background on this movement that is now in the news frequently. It's in the news today because they found, they, someone saw, and it was pretty amazing because you can almost follow this in real time via the tweets, in Seattle, which is obviously a very left-wing place, Someone saw an individual with a swastika armband on, tweeted out with the location and direction of that person, and then people showed up, tweeted out more, tweeted out more. They tracked this guy down who had a swastika armband on and punched him in the face. Now, who could be so stupid and inflammatory and just idiotic on every level as to wear a swastika armband ever is, is, is beyond me, but to wear one in Seattle is like begging to get punched in the face in a sense. But just because somebody is an idiot doesn't mean you get to hit them. This is the the core problem of so-called Nazi punching. But you had a big incident of Nazi punching today, just as you had that viral moment where Richard Spencer, the alt-right nationalist who gets so much attention because the media wants him to get so much attention, he got punched in the face and that went viral as well. So Antifa is with us right now as a movement and it is going to be vying with Black Lives Matter for supremacy in the militant left vanguard, right? This is These are the militant left political movements in the country right now, and Antifa tries to bring others under its tent, so to speak, whereas Black Lives Matter can be a part of these different protests, can be a part of these political 
these political movements on the left, but also is a standalone. But I'm getting a little ahead of myself here. So here's what you learn from the Antifa handbook. Um, It is a transnational political movement, and they take very seriously, and I think this is the most important takeaway from this anti-fascist handbook, which you can get on Amazon, by the way. I mean, I don't know if you want to give money to this guy or not. That's up to you. Uh, I mean, I this is something that I deal with when I read leftist books. I'm like, is there a way I can get it from a library? Because I don't really want to put money in their pockets necessarily. But I also need to know what the other side is thinking and saying. So it's transnational. Uh, they take seriously, and this is the key point, they take seriously that they are dealing with Nazi movements. They don't just say Nazi because they're trying to smear, although that is a real effect of what's happening, they believe, or at least they publicly proclaim to believe, that they are combating Nazi movements in their infancy. They're not pretending that Hitler is about to, or a a version of Hitler is about to take over America tomorrow, although they say that Trump is a fascist. Uh, But they are saying that if they don't literally punch Nazis today in the mouth, tomorrow we could be in the middle of a fascist, uh, a fascist inspired or fascist directed, you know, uh, totalitarianism, another Holocaust, all the great terrors of the 20th century revisited upon us. Now, you may be saying, I mean, that's the most ridiculous thing ever, Buck, and I would agree with you. But this is what they say, just like with jihadists and how I try to understand their belief system. I also want to understand you know, yeah, I can sit here, too, and talk about how they're a bunch of filthy, dumb hippies. They don't know anything. I know hippies are actually nice and peaceful and like music, but these are a bunch of, of brats from, you know, uh, from wealthy suburbs of a lot of cities in New York. They're in their late 20s and 30s. They're little pretend petty revolutionaries, but really they're all getting rides in their parents' BMWs to these things. I mean, I can say all that, too, and I'm not saying that's not true. I'm just saying, let's look at what they say they believe so we have an understanding of what the appeal is to youngish, it's really millennials, it's not young people, it's people that are in their 20s, late 20s, and early 30s from what we see so far. Let's see what they believe. They say that they are stopping Nazism, and they explicitly endorse violence. And in this book, in this anti-fascist handbook, that is clear. There, violence is not a bug. It is a feature of Antifa. Um, they also believe that fascism, Nazism, did not die in 1945. They reject that historical narrative. So there's historiography at work here, too. There's a fighting over history with this movement. And they will say that fascism is murky, but fascism is a know-it-when-you-see-it phenomenon and it's largely a cult of personality. It's based on a cult of personality. And they believe that Nazis don't get to say anything. They don't believe in just counter speech. They don't believe in you can say what you want, I can say what I want in the marketplace of ideas. No, no. They believe in active silencing and violent destructive measures to achieve that because in their minds, they also think as completely disconnected from reality as this is, that they are the best last hope of defending you know, humankind against the rise of Nazism on the right. Now, one of the big problems you run into in this book is that they believe, or uh, according to Mark Bray, who's this, I guess, de facto historian of Antifa, that socialism, anarchism, and communism 
are ideological opponents of fascism, when in reality, it's not that they are at polar opposite ends of the spectrum. History showed us, and this is true when you look at the rise of communism and fascism in in Germany, uh, leading up to the period of the Third Reich. This is the reality of uh, the, the fight between communism and socialism and the various adherence to it in uh, revolution-era Russia. I mean, this is a rewriting of history that is very essential for us to understand because the left wants to believe that socialists are the anti-fascists, when in reality, socialists and fascists were vying for the same recruits in the 20th century, uh, share many of the same ideological underpinnings. The notion of collectivism, and he actually mentions collective defense in his talk about violence in this book, but collectivism is at the heart of fascism. It's just in the case of socialism, and it depends on the, on the flavor. Are we talking about communism? Is there a dictatorship of the proletariat involved here? Is there a revolutionary committee, a central committee uh, that is in charge of this, this class warfare against the bourgeoisie? And, you know, you get into all these different flavors of what is collectivism. You see, what's different about the way we approach politics and the way that these individuals approach politics is that we believe in individual rights and that that is the basis of the state. They believe in collective rights. They believe in collective approaches to all social problems and that the collective, whatever is decided by either the mob as the collective or the elites in charge of doing the best they can for the mob, that overrides individual rights. You see, they reject by their nature. Antifa rejects our Constitution, rejects our First Amendment, rejects our Bill of Rights. And when you understand their ideology, as I do from both covering Occupy Wall Street, but also now reading uh, this somewhat serious scholarly attempt to explain Antifa, um, you have a much better understanding of why it is that one, this group has some appeal to people on the left because they have been brainwashed into thinking by the media and others that Trump really is a fascist. And two, uh, how we need to combat this to just say that they're idiots and, you know, they're dumb. And oh, no, no, they are tapping into some very uh, mainstream sentiments. Antifa taps into mainstream leftist sentiments about defense of people from racism, sexism, homophobia, they say that, in fact, racism, sexism, and homophobia and xenophobia are the bedrock of fascism. Now, that's ahistorical, but it doesn't matter because you can see how there's a merger that is occurring here, a merger of different leftist groups all under the Antifa banner. Antifa are the militants of the Democratic Party. That's what they are. When you read the handbook, when you look at their literature, when you've spent time talking to and covering these groups as I have, you see exactly what's going on here. This is not just about Antifa, I should note. And if you want it, the Anti-Fascist Handbook by Mark Bray, I, you're not going to like it. But if you want to understand the enemy, you might want to spend some time reading it. It's up to you. But I read it for you so I can tell you about it here on the show. This is a much bigger problem than just these groups of uh, black-clad, wannabe revolutionary, wannabe paramilitaries running around the streets. This has spread to mainstream campus thought. 
I'll get into that right after the break. Hey, so I team, I know we were just talking about Antifa's ideology, and I was trying to walk you through some of the the core points of, of what it is that these people that dress in black uniforms, wear masks, uh, carry around shields and other weapons and and pick people out and attack them for their ideas, not in self-defense. But I wanted to make the point that they are not uh, they're not operating in a vacuum. There are many more people that are uh, sympathetic to their point of view than I think uh, the general public or certainly than the media wants anyone to realize uh, here is what th- this this Washington Post and and this has been getting a lot of talk today. This Washington Post piece that where they did a, a poll of fifteen hundred college age students. They asked them this question: One in five respondents say using violence to disrupt a controversial speaker is acceptable. Uh, uh, this is astonishing. So the question was, a public university invites a very controversial speaker to an on-campus event. The speaker is known for making offensive and hurtful statements. A student group opposed to the speaker uses violence to prevent the speaker from speaking. Do you agree or disagree that the student's actions are acceptable? 19%. This is what David mentioned before, and I wanted to give you the actual stats. 19% agree that attacking a speaker on campus that you don't like, people would agree with that. And uh, you had 30% of males uh, in this survey were in the agree category, 10% female. Um, and then this is also, this, this is troubling, 22% of Democrats, I'm sorry, 20% of Democrats and 22% of Republicans said this. Now, we haven't seen any Republicans uh, trying to stop speech on campus. We certainly haven't seen it in the same numbers and frequency that it's been happening on the other side. But that Republican number needs to be zero. I kind of want to find, I I wish I could find where these campuses were across the country and go and, you know, I know it's an anonymous survey and this is against the spirit of the whole thing, but I want to sit down with any Republican and be like, no, 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 no. We leave that to the crazy left wing. We, We don't do that on the right. That's not how this goes. We believe in individual rights, individual freedom, and liberty. Yeah, they take the term liberal, but they don't mean it. It's a misnomer. It's a falsehood. Don't play their game. Don't fall into the trap. Violence against speech is absolutely never the answer. And it's, it was just troubling to see this, although I, I wonder. It's Democrats, because in the, in the other parts of the survey, it's so clear that Democrats are much more likely to shout down speakers and feel much more... Uh, accepting of their emotions dictating what is allowable and not allowable speech. But anyway, this is in the Washington Post. Uh, Advice. I want to get to advice coming up here in just a few moments that is now being uh, challenged on the left, I think because, well, it's exactly the sort of stuff they don't want to hear, they don't want people to hear. We'll be back with that and more. Hey, Buck Sexton, back with you now. I know that uh, this is not a a self-help show, right? I don't come in here and, and tell you to, uh, you know, I don't know, avoid debt at all costs, pay cash for everything, make a list of things to do during the week, don't procrastinate. There's lots of stuff out there with all that. But I do occasionally, when I feel strongly about something, try to uh, share a bit of a bit of buck wisdom on something, particularly for our millennial audience, uh, because we have a lot of folks listening across the country who are younger than I am, which is great. And I am very 
very honored. We even got folks at the uh, at the level of undergrads on campus that listen to this show. So when I pass along some some uh, little nuggets of of buck wisdom, um, I, I hope that it's useful to them. So recently we had that article, I think it was in the Wall Street Journal, about young women in college and just smart guidelines for them. This isn't uh, a a return to the, the Stone Age. This isn't the Handmaid's Tale. This is just, hey, don't get super drunk. Don't allow yourself to be alone with a guy when you're super drunk that you don't know. Demand that somebody actually take you out on a date and get to know you. I mean, basic stuff, but really good stuff. And I can tell you, these are things that I, I was never, well, I'm not a young woman, but when I was on campus, I never heard this. I heard a lot of stuff about resources for the uh, LGBTQ community and a lot of stuff about diversity training and a lot. But and, and also a, there was a lot of discussion of sexual assault resources on campus. That's been around for quite some time. But no, at no point in time did they have an upperclassman, which I think would have been really would have had real impact. Uh, they never had an upperclassman sit down with the freshmen, which I should note, I, I forgot about this yesterday. Yale got rid of freshmen because it's offensive. They don't want to trigger people. Don't trigger us. So now it's first year. They've now gotten rid of freshmen. It's now first year, second year, third year, fourth year. Uh, so there is that. They will not change the name, though. And I will I will not let Yale slip out of this one. Elihu Yale was a slave trader. Yale University, with its multi-multi-billion dollar endowment, is named for a slave trader. So all the PC crap that they pull until they get rid of the name is just for show. Getting rid of the name would really hurt, though, because these schools are all about name recognition. But I digress. So the advice was... Good, I thought, in that Wall Street Journal piece for young women, particularly young women on campus. I wish that it was required reading for every high school senior on her way to college across the country because they're going to get inundated with drink, 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 do whatever, you know, makes you popular. Uh, You can drink as much as guys. I mean, one of the problems we have with the breakdown of uh, of gender norms, uh, which has been a project of the left for a long time. And you can go back to Engels and his writing on this, you know, Marx and Engels. Engels was all about how class structure and family structure is inherently oppressive and women are it's like a form of servitude. And maybe we'll get into that in some detail another time if, if you want a deep dive on Marx and, and Engels and Marx's or Engels desire to really destroy the the family as we know it. And they're like, wait a second, that's better. The notion of destroying the traditional family is, is quite old. Oh, yes, it is. It has been with us for for a while. Uh, but women don't get told these things and they're not told that men biologically. Oh, my gosh, don't say it can usually not every time. I know there's some there's plenty of ladies listening to this right now. who are like, Buck, I will drink you under the table. And that is accurate. But biologically speaking, men are larger, heavier, and more able to process alcohol. And so when women try to keep up, when young women try to keep up with the guys on campus, they get blackout drunk, bad things happen. All right. So I think that's really important advice. You know, my little sister is now, has now graduated from law school and she's a a wonderful young woman. I couldn't be more proud of her. If she were 18, I would have smacked. I mean, she doesn't need, you know, I need her help now. I'm like, days, I need some advice because she's a, a lawyer. 
Um, but if she were 18 again, I would have smacked that editorial down on the table in front of her and said, read this before you go to college. Although she was very mature and I didn't have to worry about her. Uh, now I see another instance of this. Uh, and this is by you know Heather McDonald, who we've had on the show many times, who is a Manhattan Institute scholar. And she's pointing out that what are called bourgeois norms are now offensive. And you're like, well, Buck, bourgeois. What's with the fancy? What's with the fancy French word? French word. Why? Why we got to call it bourgeois norms? Uh, what they mean by that are well. Let me tell you. Here's Heather's piece in the Wall Street Journal, and this goes under that category of good advice for everybody, but it's advice that the intelligentsia no longer wants Americans to hear. It's uh, bigoted, unfair, prejudicial. I don't know. We'll pick out a few of them. Here's what she writes. To the list of forbidden ideas on American college campuses, add bourgeois norms, which are, and this is now we get into what those norms are, hard work, self-discipline, marriage, and respect for authority. Last month, two law professors published an op-ed in the Philadelphia Inquirer calling for a revival of the cultural script that prevailed in the 1950s and still does among affluent Americans. Uh, Get married before you have children and strive to stay married for their sake. Get the education you need for gainful employment. Work hard and avoid idleness. Eschew substance abuse and crime. The weakening of these traditional norms has contributed to today's low rates of workforce participation, lagging educational levels and widespread opioid abuse, the professors argued. Now, she goes into how this op-ed, those are pretty straightforward and universal concepts, right? Get married before you have kids. Stay married when you have kids. Get an education that will let you get a good job. Work hard. Don't be idle. Don't drink too much. Don't break the law. That's it. It's really sound advice. It is really, really good advice. And I just see the the subtle, slow-moving devastation Within my peer group of people who have bought into this, you know, yeah, you know, I'm just going to drink and I'm going to keep drinking and lots of drinking and maybe some drugs here and there, too, and drinking and drugs and drinking and drugs. And they don't realize the long term effect that it is having on them, that they are not where they would otherwise be in their careers and their personal lives, that it is actually slowing them down physically and professionally and, and personally. So. I see this happening all the time. Now, I think I'm not telling people don't have a drink. I like to drink once in a while, but drinking is a dangerous beast. I've talked to you about this on the show before, and alcoholism is much more subtle than, you know, I'm on the end of the bar and I'm picking fights with people I've never seen. No, alcoholism is I come home every day and I have a few drinks and I get a little buzzed, and if I don't, I get nervous. If I don't, I'm agitated. You know, that's what, or at least having an alcohol problem, maybe not a full-fledged alcoholism, but an alcohol problem is, is bad enough. But this advice, as I said, was pretty straightforward, but people freaked out. Uh, here's what Heather writes in this Wall Street Journal op-ed. The op-ed triggered an immediate uproar at the University of Pennsylvania, where one of its authors uh, teaches. The dean of the Penn Law School published an op-ed in the student newspaper noting the contemporaneous occurrence of the op-ed and a white supremacist rally in Charlottesville suggesting that these views were divisive, even noxious. Half of Ms. Wax's law faculty colleagues signed an open letter denouncing her piece and calling on students to report any bias or stereotype they encounter. 
Students and alumni petitions poured forth accusing Ms. Wax, the author of the editorial about those norms that I mentioned, uh, accusing her of white supremacy, misogyny and homophobia and demanding that she be banned from teaching first year law classes. This is insanity. This is universally applicable, good, sound, well-intentioned advice. But now it's part of misogyny, racism. It's a woman writing the op-ed, but she's still part of the patriarchy. She's been co-opted by the patriarchy. I just, I, I notice that there is a hostility among academics on the left. There is a, a hostility towards morality, towards goodness, towards responsibility, towards individual endeavor and accountability. There is a hostility to those concepts. And it's really at the core of what it means to be a, quote, liberal these days, although they're anti-liberty, so I hate that term for them. The modern left, the progressive left in this country, at its core, is opposed to the basic standards that you would need to form the very judgments about what is moral and what is good and what is good advice for young people. Young people listening, that stuff about get married before you have kids, stay married once you have kids, get an education for a good job. Uh, stay away from too much alcohol, stay away from drugs entirely. This is all really good advice. And I know I sound like an old fogey and get off my lawn and all that, but I'm telling you, I'm only 35. I see it all the time playing out. It is fantastic advice. Don't listen to the left. They don't know what they're talking about. We'll talk about naps part two in a second. Stay with me. Welcome back, team. Buck here with you. I like to think of myself uh, on occasion as a trendsetter cutting edge a revolutionary even not when it comes to fashion if it weren't for miss molly i would look look around the bottom of my closet and the end result of my fashion choices would always be the well-intentioned but goofy dad from an 80s sitcom so it's not that i'm a trendsetter in that way and and i i can't claim to know what's going on really with pop culture or anything else but when it comes to my love of napping it looks like I may be onto something. Yeah, that's right. You're welcome, America. You're welcome. It's catching on. People are writing about this, and I'm not going to say the Wall Street Journal necessarily listens to Buck Sexton with America now, but I'm not going to say they don't. I don't know. Maybe they do. Their piece today, continuing on with our series on why you should start taking siesta, you could call it, if you want to make it sound a little fancy, if you just want it to be you know, a little more America, you'd just be like, nap time. Uh, but what's the best way to take an afternoon nap? The Wall Street Journal writing about this today. And what they're telling you are, are a few key things here. Uh, one is that if you're an adult, you want to get seven hours of sleep a night, which I'm sure you've heard many times. It used to be eight when I was younger. I remember people saying that. Now you're hearing seven. But seven seems to be pretty manageable. The place where we, the, the two areas where we tend to create the biggest sleep deficit are in our commutes and our working hours. I mean, we're just working all the time. And I have to force myself at night now to turn off the phone or at least put it aside. And the Kindle is good for me. The Kindle I can read and I can fall asleep with it pretty easily. But the phone and social media and everything else, it, it, it keeps you wired. And you need to bring that down and get a good night's sleep. You're just not as functional. I mean, anytime, if you've ever had the experience of being up all night for whatever reason, whether it's stress or whether it's uh, you're out 
partying. I, back in the day, back way, way back when, there were a few nights when I can remember perhaps leaving a nightclub and the sun had come up or started to come up. And that was, uh, that, that was a, an instance of me needing two days of recovery after that. But I'm a huge believer in sleep. I, I also think that uh, the, the notion of a nap room, which at the Huffington Post, Darling, the nap room is like the best. It's what we do, the Huffington Post. We pull together a place for you to do yoga and the naps because Ariana Huffington is all about life-work balance. Well, yeah, life-work balance if you're already a millionaire and don't have to worry about getting fired, as pretty much everybody I know at the Huffington Post has had to uh, either worry about or has been fired at one point. Um, so, yeah, it's easy to it's easy to be the cool uh, new management practices boss who's like, hey, guys, like, let's all just, you know, let's all just take a little break here. We've got some fantastic uh, snacks set up for you, non-GMO, organic and sustainable, of course. And then we're all going to stop working so hard. We're going to go into our yoga room and we're going to all just get into uh child's pose or dead body pose uh, and we're just gonna like let all that stress go man that's great if you don't have to worry about the other guy or gal at their desk doing their work right so we are all stuck in this in this hamster wheel existence and the one time that we all can finally recharge is when we're asleep and so good sleep is is essential and the health benefits of this are Tremendous. I should note that the research on immunity, I like to read about this stuff. The research on immunity and a good night's sleep is is staggering. If you skip, if you get an entire night without sleep, uh, your immunity is dramatically affected by that. I mean, and, and some of you probably have had this experience. If you stayed up all night because you were trying to you know, cram for final exams, which I should note, they've also done lots, lots of studies on how cramming doesn't work. Uh, but then if you got a cold a couple days later, we, you always probably thought to yourself, oh, well, that's just stress. But the truth is that your immune system was depleted because you weren't getting sleep, which is also tied into stress. And uh, I should note that stress is probably the single uh, least appreciated and understood aspect of the health, uh, well, various health crises in this country, everything from heart disease to uh, issues of, of um, obesity and, and, you know, stress plays such a large role in all this. But we're, we're always led to believe that, you know, if we just, if we're the hamster on the wheel, we just run a little faster, one more, you know, hit the pellet or hit the little thing one more time, get one more pellet, it's going to make everything else seem like it's not a big deal. Sleep is essential. You cannot be skipping out on sleep and, uh, and getting all of your work done and, and being as efficient and effective as you should be. So naps are a key part of that. Now, if you're somebody who finds yourself falling asleep at your desk involuntarily, that means you have a sleep deficit, according to this Wall Street Journal article. Whereas if you decide on your own to take a tw 20 minutes is pretty optimal. I don't know. I can never nap for 20 minutes. I always end up doing the nap where I think it's going to be 20 minutes. And then I wake up like two hours later and I'm like... <laughs> You know, I, I have like the dry mouth and I have the, the drool on one side and the dry mouth. And, and I'm like, where am I? And I don't know what's going on. And I, I have that kind of that's my version of the nap. Right. The, and you have that little moment of panic. Like, have I been asleep all day? But I love it. I mean, I still love napping. 
So it's very helpful for you. It's very good for you. And I saw I should also note that this was on the Drudge Report today too. Forget getting rich. Sex and sleep are the keys, uh, the real keys to happiness. I don't think you needed me to tell you that, but also true. Uh, very important for health. Those those two things, health and sense of well being, which they are tied into each other. I know I get I get a little kind of hippie uh, hippie stuff going here when I talk to you about wellness and health, but. You know, I have some family members who are very knowledgeable in these areas, and I try to pick up as much as I can on my own, largely because I find Western medicine so deficient when it comes to lifestyle issues and chronic pain and any not stress management. You know, they're just saying, here's a pill, here's a pill, take the pill, here's a pill. Uh, that's not going to fix a lot of things that people go into the doctor to deal with. But now, pardon me for getting up on my, you know, Pfizer-sponsored soapbox there. Um all right. Uh, I do want to ask you to please uh, check out Buck Sexton with America Now on iTunes. Download the show. We love seeing those download numbers go up month after month. It really uh, helps us and it's really encouraging to me. Also, all of your feedback on Facebook, very much appreciated, especially when I do more experimental things like the history show. And I ask, guys, hey, do you guys like this? If you do, there'll be more. If you don't, I'll go back to other. I've got I've got so many ideas for the show and I never have enough time. But Facebook.com slash Buck Sexton, I do read the messages, and it's a great way, especially if you're listening to the show a little later or listening on the podcast, a great way to have your voice heard here on the team. And and we're going to continue this Friday with Team Buck Speaks, so I will be picking uh, messages from the week to uh, to share on air. So write me something uh, really nice, really clever, really insightful, and we'll go with it. Until tomorrow, my friends, no matter what comes your way, shields high.